I often like to put one word in my mind for a passage or a chapter to really grasp the main idea of the passage. I think the word that comes out of this chapter quite clearly, at least to me, is the word confidence. If we're to put one word over this chapter, it would be the word confidence. To give you the full title for the sermon, it is confidence in its right place or confidence in the right person. This idea of confidence is very important to us. As I stand here before you, one of the most important things to me is, do I have something to say? Or am I just going to try and fill the time? Do I have a message? To use the Old Testament idea, do I have a burden from the Lord to convey to you? That gives the preacher confidence. When the preacher stands up, he is filled with the message and therefore forgets himself. But when he concentrates on himself, he loses his confidence. In fact, this subject is so important that many have written books, countless books on this subject. I won't mention titles. I don't want to distract you from the Word of God, but um, many books, a multitude of books have been written on the subject of confidence, and the vast majority of them get the subject so wrong. In this chapter, the Apostle Paul addresses this subject in a far more uh, beneficial way uh, than those other writers have dealt with the subject. Now, we're going to do a sweeping overview of the chapter, so we're not going to concentrate on any one part of the chapter, just give you uh, an overview of this subject found in this chapter. And there are seven points, and they will be brief points. We're going to look at the right confidence, the wrong confidence, an exclusive confidence, a persevering confidence, confidence exemplified, a rejected confidence, and a glorious confidence. Let's look at this subject under these headings. First of all, the right type of confidence outlined in verses 1 to 3. This right confidence, first and foremost, is placed in the Lord. It is finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you to me. Indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. We see that this confidence in the Lord leads to joy. When Paul says, finally, my brethren, it's not that this is the last thing he's going to write. What he's really saying is, uh, this is one of the most important things. If you don't get anything else, get this. Above all, brethren, get this. Rejoice in the Lord. Have such faith, have such confidence, have such trust in the Lord that it leads you, as we even sang from the psalm, these ideas of lifting up our voice, lifting up our hearts, rejoicing in the Lord, not just um, singing the words, but feeling the words. 
feeling the, the power of the Lord in his word and therefore rejoicing in him because the joy of the Lord is what? Our strength. So we see nurture and nature and need in this first verse. He's saying brethren. This is not a theological statement. This is the cry of a brother in Christ. We see the need. It is safe. It is destructive for us not to rejoice. One of the great blessings of the Lord's day is to praise the Lord. And it is good, uh, as the psalmist says in Psalm 92, it is a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord objectively, but also subjectively. It is good because it's right, but it's good also because it's beneficial. When we rejoice in the Lord, we strengthen ourselves by the grace of God. The children of Israel destroyed themselves by complaining and grumbling. We are not to be so foolish as they were. But also this right confidence warns against those who would rob us of it. In verse 2, beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. These ones who can rob you of your liberty in Christ, of your freedom in the Son of God, and they are like dogs because a dog will take away. A dog will do, this spiritual dogs will do their evil work. Their character, dogs, their corruption, evil workers, and their identity, the concision. Paul finds this so important that he identifies exactly who he is talking about. In the politically correct generation that we live in, it is seen as unpopular to name names. All through Paul's writings, he names people. Why? Because the, the privileges of the believer are so important that anybody that is going to put that in danger needs to be pointed out. We are not to be politically correct as the people of God. We are to be desirous to be right before God and for the good of our own souls. But also this right confidence understands its reasons. Verse 3. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. There's the idea of identity here. There's the idea of knowing who we are. Knowing that we are the people of God. Knowing how we worship God and who we rejoice in. And in what we have no trust. False religion is often that which has no confidence in the right sense. And it's actually that which leads people to confusion. And so often you see in certain people's lives that they carry on in their religion for many years and then get to the point of thinking, well, is it real? But for the believer, we know who God is. We know who we are in Christ 
And that leads us to a confidence in the Lord. So that we're here tonight not just because we've randomly arrived in this place and we're, we're going to do what we do when I'll sing the Psalms because that's what we're meant to do. No, it's because God is God. And because we are his people. And therefore we can confidently stand, not in ourselves, but in him. And proclaim the praises of our God. That's a wonderful confidence, isn't it? It's wonderful to come to this place, this house of God tonight, and be confident in Him and find all the answers, a yea and amen in our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the right type of confidence. But then, secondly, the wrong type of confidence in verses 4 to 6. And it's explained by one who had a history of such empty or vain confidence prior to his conversion. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Paul is saying, I was in that place. And in fact, not only was I in that place of having a wrong type of confidence in the wrong thing, which is self, I was the best. In other words, I was the prototype. I was the the chief zealot, the chief Pharisee, the prototype Israelite, the prototype one who thought he was getting to heaven by his own works and his own obedience. And he speaks about his background, circumcised the eighth day, the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, his advancement as an Hebrew of the Hebrews, Concerning the law, a Pharisee, his commitment concerning zeal, persecuting the church, his life as touching or concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Or in other words, he talks about his nationality, his religion, his heart, and his life. And all his confidence at one time was placed in these things. This applies to the vast majority of people in the world today. One of the most horrendous religious songs ever penned is that one called Give Me That Old Time Religion. Do you know what I'm talking about? You know, and the words go, and I remember sitting in the car with a with a, an elder from a certain evangelical church many years ago, and we're going along, and, and this song is playing in his car, and I'm looking at him, <laughs> going, really? <laughs> you know, it was good enough for my mother, it was good enough for my father, it was good enough for my brother, it's good enough for me. Well, that's human religion, and that's the cry of the vast majority of people. I was born this, I'll remain this till I die, and they take confidence in that. We are not here because, I hope, we are not here because we were born into something, but because we were born again into the kingdom of God. The wrong type of confidence. Which leads us to point three, which in verses 7 to 11 is an exclusive confidence in Christ. Verses 7 to 11. There is in verses 7 and 8 a necessary 
transfer of confidence. We can't have a confidence in me and a confidence in Christ mixed. We cannot have a synergistic salvation. I cannot say, well, I'm, I, I know what Jesus did and I appreciate that, but I'm going to add my works or even add my faith because the faith that we have is a, a gift and not just a gift that is offered, a gift that is given effectually to us. We should never talk about the gift of salvation like uh, the, the terrible illustration of it, like a present that God offers to, to everybody and we have to take it. No, God gives salvation by regenerating the soul. We receive Christ, but we do not, in that sense, accept Christ. We are accepted. We receive him, but we are not active in that receiving. We are passive. We receive him, yes, by faith, but a faith that is given to us by the sovereign will of God. The free offer of the gospel I believe in, but I think when people describe eternal life like a free gift, that is, a, that is wrong terminology. It's a wrong illustration. Because eternal life <clears throat> is, in Scripture, described like physical life. And the gift of life, physically, is not something we accept. It's something that we are passive in. And in the gift of eternal life, we are passive. So there's a necessary transfer of confidence. But what things, verse 7, were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency, the surpassing excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them, but in the Greek word, I think we well know, skubalon, which means excrement or dung, as we have it in our um, authorized version. Why? That I may win Christ. There has to be a rejection of all self-confidence in order to know that Christ is ours. Someone said to me recently, I don't think I'm a Christian. I said, why? They said, because uh, I do this and I do that. And I say, so you're a sinner? Yes. And they're putting all the emphasis in themselves. And I say, well, hold on for a moment. Let's talk about Christ. Do you have any lack of faith or confidence or trust in Christ? And they say, absolutely not. I completely trust in Christ. I have complete confidence in him, but I have none in myself. I say, wonderful. It's exactly what Paul says. It's exactly what Paul says. You see, for the, the religious Pharisee, who is putting confidence in self, well, then they've no hope. But for the believer, the more we advance in no self-confidence and all our confidence in him, that is what we must experience and know. 
The reasons and motivation for such a transfer is in verses 9 to 11, and there are three. There are justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification, verse 9. And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is true, the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. So our justification, the grounds of our justification must be in Christ alone. And therefore there must be a necessary transfer of all self-confidence. That must be rejected, as Paul says, it must be counted as dung. Why? To win Christ, to be justified in him, but also to be sanctified. Verse 10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection. We can be justified, but not have a sense of the power. Maybe you're here tonight, and you do believe you are a Christian. You do believe you're saved, but... Power just doesn't seem to be there today. That's why you must forsake all self-confidence. All your past, all your church going, all your obedience must be put behind you. As Paul says, forgetting those things which are behind. Quite often the reason why we lose the power is we fall back into the religious mindset. I'll trust in my upbringing. I'll trust in my lifestyle. And the power goes. Why? Because Christ ceases to be the focus. Christ ceases to be the source of the power. It's all about what I'm doing. My obedience, my repentance, my faith. We do not have faith in our faith. We do not have faith in our repentance. We have faith exclusively in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where the joy comes from. That's where the power comes from. That's where the the freedom and liberty, that's why Paul cries out to the Galatians, stand fast in that liberty and don't let anyone dare to take it from you. Justification, verse 9. Sanctification, verse 10. But glorification, verse 11. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. And I love this. Because we don't know what's ahead. Paul didn't know in this sense what was ahead. But what Paul knew was this. Holding on to Christ is the only way to glory. Holding on to him. We don't know the process. We don't know the moment of our death. We don't know how long we will live. But we know this one thing. To hold on to Jesus is the way to glory. And brothers and sisters, that's what we've come here tonight to do. We have not come tonight to listen to a good sermon. Or to maybe a bad sermon. We've not come to just say we've been to church we've come here tonight to take hold of Jesus Christ by faith because if the means of grace does not give you the energy and the power and the desire to hold on to Jesus Christ it's a waste of time I said this morning that the sermon is not just about uh, sort of an academic exercise just to fill our minds with, with scripture 
in itself, but to lead us so that the word of God would be the means whereby we meet with Christ in his word. Just as we meet together, and this place is a means of meeting together, so the word of God is that glorious sanctuary where we meet with the Son of God. We dwell with him by his word. And that's why the devil will seek incessantly to separate you from the Bible, to separate you from the Scripture. Because that's where you have fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where you meet with him and have fellowship with him. Fourthly, a persevering, ongoing confidence in Christ. Verses 12 to 14. In verse 12, there is a following In verse 13, there is a forgetting. And in verse 14, there is a forging on. Look at the following. Not as though, verse 12, I had already attained. Not that he wasn't justified. Not that he wasn't a believer. But he's talking about pressing on to greater perfection. And the word perfection here means maturity in Christ. As Peter could say, grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. His final words in 2 Peter 3, is very, the very last thing that Peter says in 2 Peter 3, is but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. The words, the last words of Peter inspired to us. And here there is this following. But I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended. In other words, I am apprehended of Christ. But I want not just him to take hold of me. I want to take hold of him with all my might, with all that is within me, to take hold of Jesus. It's this precious embrace, this precious this desire for Christ that shows that we are truly justified, that we are being sanctified, and that one day we will be glorified. It's all about our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. But there is a forgetting, verse 13. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before You see, Lot's wife failed in this test, didn't she? It's interesting with Lot's wife and with Abraham because it says in Genesis that Abraham looked towards Sodom and Gomorrah, but he wasn't turned into a pillar of salt. In the Hebrew, the words are different. With, with, with Abraham, it was an observing. Abraham observed Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot's wife desired Sodom and Gomorrah. She looked back with longing, wanting to be there. How much have we forgotten the things which are behind? Because 
a chief part of our sanctification is a sanctified amnesia. To forget much that needs to be forgotten. But here with Paul, he's not just talking about sin. He's even talking about much of the good stuff, even his obedience, even his walk with Christ to some degree he's talking about because he's saying yesterday's blessings are in the past. We're often discouraged, aren't we? We, we have a blessed Lord's Day. We wake up Monday morning and it's like, like nothing happened. Yesterday's blessings are yesterday's blessings. Don't be discouraged if you wake up Monday morning feeling down, that's just the incentive or the, or the reason why you need to go back to the Lord again for that day's blessings. Never think that yesterday's spiritual bread is sufficient for today. It's not. You must feed today. You might have a big feed on a certain day and wake up the next day and you need to eat again. Why? Because that was yesterday's food. We need to feed on the Word of God every day. There is a following verse 12, a forgetting verse 13, but there is a forging on. I love verse 14. I press. I press toward the mark for the high, for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Are you pressing forward? Are you forging on? Are you continuing in Christ? Are you looking to him moment by moment? That's what you're called to. That's the high calling. We're called to glory. The, the unbeliever lives like an animal. And in fact, that's what many of them are saying we are. Why? Because that's what they believe. We are not animals. We've been, we've been made with our eyes to lift to eternity. Fix your eyes upon Jesus. Colossians chapter 3 tells us that we are to, to see him where he is, where he sits at the right hand. That's where we're going. We're going to glory. We forget the things that are behind. Why? Because we're going somewhere far better. Far better. A persevering, ongoing confidence in Christ. And then fifthly, following the godly example of confidence in verses 15 to 17. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect or mature, or be men and women of Christ, be thus minded. And if anything, if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal this even unto you. I, I love this as well because we don't have to worry about all the details. Now get this. Brothers and sisters, get this. You don't have to be a really brainy person. You don't even have to be a good memorizer of scripture but the one thing you need is a desire to know him a desire to know him more to say with John I must decrease but he must increase I must step off the throne and he must occupy and reign in my heart and you see once that's there 
once there's a genuine desire for Christ, as we said this morning to our own people, you know, the Lord Jesus often said to, um, to people when, they, when, they, when he met them, what do you want me to do for you? And if the Lord Jesus was to say those words to you, what would be your answer? You see, God will take care of the details. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. You don't need to impress God. I think many Christians are uh, f- fall into the trap of think we have to impress God. No, we are just called to love Him. Love Him. Love Him in the Word. Love Him in Christ. Love Him by pleading with Him to fill you more with the Holy Spirit. God will take care of the details. Nevertheless, whereunto we've already attained, verse 16, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. In other words, it never changes. The call never changes. There's no second level Christian experience. It's always the same. It's always more of Christ. It's always more of him. There's too little of Christ in today's sermons, isn't there? We don't come here to hear a lecture. We don't come here even just to get, as we said already, more Bible knowledge. But we want to see him in the word. We want to see Christ coming to us in the pages and the words in the the text of scripture. So that we can love him afresh. So that our, that our soul can be enraptured with him. The measure of your Christian life is that, no more and no less, how much of Christ, how much of him. Do you have enough Christ to get you to heaven? This chapter says no, for the believer... No, yes, we, we are justified by Christ, but we want more. We want the Christ of sanctification. And we want the Christ of glorification. And we want, as the Puritans would say, to have heaven on earth. To have heaven in us before we are in heaven. We want Christ in us, the hope of glory. We want to walk through this world not as those who are of the world but those who are leaving this world. Traveling through. Traveling through this world not as our home but just like you might use an airport to go somewhere better. Brethren, be followers together of me. Paul says, Paul is not writing as an academic, though he was an academic. Paul is not writing as a theologian, though he was a theologian. Paul is writing as a brother in Christ. Brethren, be followers together of me. Follow the example. Follow the example of one who realizes the emptiness of this world, the the emptiness of a life without Christ, the emptiness of religion without Christ. 
Follow the example. Realize that this is the, the only thing that is real. In all the world, the only thing that is real and lasting is the blessed gospel of our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. And mark them which walk so as ye have for an example, as you have us for an example. Mark them out. I do something that many people don't like. I highlight my books. You know, yellow highlighter. Not on my old books, my wife would uh, um, have dealings with me. But on newer books that, you know, there's many of them around. So it doesn't matter if one gets completely. But, you know, yellow highlighter. Yeah, I want to remember that part. Paul says, highlight the people. And remember these people. Mark them out. And follow their example. Sixthly, a rejected confidence, verses 18 and 19. And this is the black backdrop of this glorious truth. This contrast. Because many walk. He could say earlier in Philippians that all seek their own, not the things of Jesus Christ. And here he says in verse 18, For many walk of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. You see, brothers and sisters, there is no middle ground. There is no halfway house. You're either a disciple of Christ, or you are an enemy of the cross. On Calvary, we saw that, didn't we? We see that in Scripture. One going to paradise and one dying in his sin. There is no third option. If you're not a believer in Christ tonight, you are going to hell. If you don't trust in Christ alone for your salvation, there is no limbo, there is no purgatory. There's no middle place. Therefore, we cannot be wrong on this. There's only two options. Either justified, sanctified, and glorified with Christ, or condemned, humiliated, and eternal damnation apart from him. whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame. It's one of the, the problems, well, one of the main serious problems with, with, with the world today, isn't it? There was a time when much of the sins that, are, that we could mention, which we won't, even for the ungodly, were points of shame, but now it's their glory, now it's their pride. Their glory is in their shame who mind earthly things you see it's when you boil it down to its most basic it's having a mind on earth we our feet are to be on the earth but our mind 
is to be in heaven. That's where we're to be thinking. A rejected confidence. And then lastly, we have a glorious confidence, verses 20 and 21. There's a glorious looking and longing in verse 20 for our conversation is in heaven. There's a sense in which, you know, we're joining with the glorious ones in heaven now. Why? Because Ephesians tells us that we we sit in heavenly places even now with Christ. We're only here physically, but our heart is in glory. We long to be with him. And it's only a short time. And we will. From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a glorious promise at the beginning of verse 21. Who shall change our vile body that it may be fashioned like his glorious body. And this is why John says that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. By his glorious power, a glorious looking and longing, a glorious promise, and a glorious power, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Again, let us not worry about the details of how this happens. He is able to do it. You know, um, you might have a, an issue maybe with your car or something. This is, a, this is a poor illustration, but forgive me for the illustration. And you're struggling with, with your car and you bring it to the mechanic. You come back the next day, hopefully. <laughs> he was a good mechanic. And suddenly you're driving your car and it's like, wow. It's like a new car again. At least that's the theory, isn't it? <laughs> Well, poor illustration. But when it comes to our Lord Jesus Christ, we don't need to worry about how he's going to do it. Because he is able to subdue all things to himself. One day he will raise from the grave Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And many of our brothers and sisters have already gone to glory in their souls and their bodies are in the graves. Our families, our friends, those who have gone before us, their bodies will be raised and they will be like Christ. They will will look at each other and will say, I see the family resemblance. Like him, looking like him, because he is our brother, and he has gone before us into glory. And his desire, according to John 17, is that we may be where he is, that we be with him. That is his will. Well, 
what reason for confidence we have in him. May God increase our joy, our satisfaction, and our trust and confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 71. Psalm 71 will sing verses 1 to 8. Psalm 71, verses 1 to 8. O Lord, my hope and confidence is placed in thee alone. Then let thy servant never be put to confusion. And let me in thy righteousness from thee deliverance have. Cause me escape. Incline thine ear unto me and me save. Be thou my dwelling rock to which I ever may resort. This is like Paul was reading this before he wrote Philippians 3, isn't it? Be thou my dwelling rock to which I ever may resort, for thou givest commandment me to save, for thou art my rock and fort. Psalm 71 verses 1 to 8 will stand to sing.